Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The thing that blows my mind the most, given how enormous the ocean is, that we've actually managed to change the very chemistry of the entire thing. Hello, welcome to The Climate Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network, and this is episode two of our climate change series. So the thing I found when I began really trying to build a better model of climate change and its politics is that the simplified version of it that I had, you know, sun's rays come into the earth and then they kind of bounce back off and then there's this semi-permeable thing happening around the earth called the atmosphere and how much of it gets out is how warm we get. Nah, that's not, I mean, it is a little bit how it works, but it's not how it works. The thing that talking to scientists really shows you here is that this is first and foremost a story about oceans. It is first and foremost a story about those blue things that cover 70% of the world and hold a 93, I think it is, percent of the heat. What is happening to the globe, to the climate, but also to where humans live, what they eat, the kinds of jobs they can have. It is a story of oceans, and oceans have different dynamics, have different needs, um, have both different problems and potentials than the story on land. But of course, they're harder for us to to grasp, right? You hear about glaciers melting. It's, I, I find it too, right? It's hard to connect to a place you don't live. Um, but it's crucial. It is crucial to understanding the story. And, and as I was talking to people about who understood this and who could communicate it, uh, Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson kept coming up. She's been named by Outside Magazine, the most influential marine biologist of our time. She's a CEO of the Urban Ocean Lab, of Ocean Collective. She's taught at New York University, won all kinds of awards, been on all kinds of lists. But she's just somebody who really does this work, has helped communities prepare and rethink how they manage their oceans. She's done it at the theoretical level, the practical level. And this is a really, really important part of this conversation. And uh, there's something about talking to her. Sometimes you'll talk to folks, both in the science and political communities, and they're working on issues, and they're super smart about them. But you can tell that at some point along the way, they've stopped feeling them. And something that was really stark for me about talking to Ayana is that she hasn't stopped feeling this. And I think that's there's a real power in that. Um, I think she I think it is important, particularly in a space where it can be hard to put ourselves into the mindset of what is happening in the ocean and how does it affect us, particularly if you live in an urban center or far from an ocean and you just don't feel it in your everyday life. I think feeling it really matters. Um, so this was a, a great and I thought very sobering conversation. Uh, so I hope you all enjoy it. As always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So how did you get the job every kid dreams of having? <laughs> I think being stubborn 
Um, yeah, I decided at five that I wanted to be a marine biologist, like many other kids, when I first learned to swim and first saw a coral reef through the bottom of a glass-bottom boat. And I saw this whole other universe that existed under the surface of the sea and just wanted to know everything about it. Um, and it was, you know, as a kid, everyone asks you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I just kept saying marine biologist to kind of like let make them leave me alone, even though I only half believed it. And I think there was an element of manifesting there. Uh-huh. But it also just ties together so many of the things I care about because while all my degrees are in marine biology, my work in conservation intertwines so many different things, right? So from the science to the policy to the social justice work to storytelling to art. And it really is just this crazy complicated puzzle that I wake up every day trying to think about how I can help solve. Yeah, I've heard you say that to be a good marine biologist, you actually need to be a sociologist and need to be able to do psychologist law. Psychologist. Tell, yeah. tell me a bit about those other dimensions of it for those for whom that just is like water scientist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there are people who are marine biologists who are just absolute experts on a species of fish or on an ecosystem, on, you know, coral reefs or on copepods or on nudibranchs or octopuses or whatever their thing is. And that's important. Like we need people who have a really deep and nuanced understanding how individual organisms or oceanographic phenomena work. But that's not me. I actually was worried at one point that they wouldn't give me a PhD in marine biology because so little of my work fell into that traditional box because very early on I realized that counting fish was only a small part of the challenge. If I was interested in sustainable management of fishing, I actually needed to talk to fishermen and talk to policymakers and understand the socioeconomic and cultural context within which these fish were getting caught. What influenced you to see it that way? I think... In part because my dad's Jamaican, in part because I relate more to people than to fish, even though fish are super cool. <laughs> even even to octopi? Octopuses, technically. It's, really? It's, it's not a Greek, octopi? not Latin in its origin. So Oh man, I just got shut ending. down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm the, the daughter of a Jamaican who loves fishing and an English teacher. So So but Octopuses. Octopuses, which is like a little bit weird, but that's what that's what it is. But as a, as a quick digression, you've written some interesting things and signed letters about not experimenting on them. Mm. It has seemed to me as you've as I've read you talking about your path here that there is a like an alienness to the space beneath the sea mm. that is like pretty seductive. Yeah, I think that's part of what draws people to the science of the ocean, but also what makes it so hard to do ocean conservation because it is so out of sight and out of mind for most people. And so I've always just been really curious to understand the way the world works. And when I was deciding what to study in graduate school, I almost did forests because how cool are trees, right? Like there are so many things I would like to know about nature, but at the time there were a lot of people chaining themselves to trees and there were not a lot of people really going to bat for the ocean in the in the, in a similar way. So that that's kind of actually what motivates this conversation for me that 
I think like a lot of people, I have like a rough understanding of climate change and what's going on. But if you if you really drew out my mental model of it, it would be something like there's an earth and there's a kind of gaseous layer around the earth and the sun like shines heat into the earth and then some of it comes back out, but some of it gets trapped in by like this thickening gaseous layer. And mm-hmm. I recognize how many things I've butchered. I but call it a blanket. A blanket, It's like right. a blanket of greenhouse <laughs> gases over the earth. It's like, it's like when you try to wear, um, I really like sleeping under a comforter, uh-huh. but this is inappropriate in the summer. And like that's that's kind of like the vibe for the poor earth is like sweating under right, its exactly, comforter. Yes. And you're just like, but it's so cozy, but it's also it's melting me. But as I've been trying to understand this at a deeper level and talking to scientists, the thing that you come across a lot is that this is very heavily a story about on the one hand clouds, on the other hand, the ocean. That mm-hmm. 70% of Earth's surface, 93% of the total heat is trapped in there. Yeah, so far the ocean has absorbed 93% of this excess heat that's been trapped by greenhouse gases. And it's also absorbed about 30% of the CO2. And that's what's led to ocean acidification. So we've actually changed the pH of the entire ocean because of how much carbon dioxide we've forced it to absorb, which turns into carbonic acid, which lowers the pH, which means that it's harder for things to build shells and skeletons. So like oysters and corals are having a super hard time like making their bodies. <laughs> so we're, I'm going to actually try to go through that sentence like every three words at a time <laughs> Sure, here. let's do it. So let, let's start with the difference between the ocean is absorbed 93% of the heat mm-hmm. versus 30% of the carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. What are the two different ideas being offered there? So the in the same way that like if you go swimming in um, in September and even though well that's not a good example this year because it's like the it was the warmest September ever basically Didn't you just have a ninety eight degree day oh in God. October it's a, it's such a mess I mean the weather is no longer small talk right and as a person who has a strange level of introversion for someone who does so much speaking into microphones it's was like a safe thing to say to strangers but it's not anymore. And so it used to be that you could go swimming in the fall at the beach. And even if the air was cool, the water would be pretty warm because just water holds on to heat a lot longer than air. And so the ocean has been absorbing a lot of this excess heat for decades now. And it's just holding on to it because the air is also warmer. So it doesn't just re-equilibrate in that way. So that's the air part. So, and the carbon dioxide part, um, yeah. it is holding the actual molecules. Like it's holding the yeah. substance that is carbon dioxide. Yeah, the dioxide. CO2 molecules get absorbed into the ocean and are part of this, then become part of this chemical reaction that results in the creation of um, carbonic acid. So, and that that is, I think, a place where when you look at this from the ocean's perspective, the story of climate change looks quite different because we think mm-hmm. about it as things getting warmer. Mm-hmm. That's true for the oceans, but there's also the dimension of acidification, yeah. which there's like no scarier term than ocean acidification. Really? I think it's a scary sounding term. Mm. What does it mean? It means that the the actual chemistry of seawater is changing. So on a pH scale, right, there's acidic and there's basic. And it goes from 14 as the most basic. Water is a 7. And then the most acidic is 1. And so the ocean, I'm going to mess up the exact numbers, but the ocean was about an 8. And it's actually, or 8.2, and now it's 8.1. And so it's a logarithmic scale, actually. So that's a huge difference. Um, And so... 
that's the shift that we're seeing. So it's not actually acidic yet. That would be under seven, but it is more acidic than it used to be. And that's measurable across the globe. And long term, what are the consequences of advancing ocean acidification? We don't know all the consequences yet. I mean, this is something that's really just happened so recently that the science has not all been done yet. And so we know that it certainly makes it harder for oysters and mussels and clams to grow shells. It makes it harder for corals to form their skeletons. But also because fish smell through the water, they're basically like inhaling water. And that's how part of, you know, how they navigate their world and understand what's going on around them. It's changing essentially the smell of the ocean and disorienting fish and other creatures so that, for example, fish may not be running away from predators as much because they don't smell them coming. And so you have all of these like predator-prey dynamics and can the fish and the corals smell where home is anymore because it's just the whole water chemistry is different. And this is actually... The thing that blows my mind the most, given how enormous the ocean is, that we've actually managed to change the very chemistry of the entire thing. Yeah, it's there are a couple things in climate change that are just so big they're just hard to know how to think about them. Yeah, but but that that always feels like one of them to me. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say that? When we think about climate change from the ocean perspective, there are basically three things happening, or at least three big categories of things. There's acidification, there's warming, and there's certainly for human beings, sea level rise. Like, are those are three big things that people need to be keeping an eye on? Um, there's a fourth in terms of, like, the physical characteristics of the ocean. And then there's also, like, what's happening in terms of the biology and ecology, mm-hmm. right? So the fourth is the change in currents. So actually because of how much melting there is of ice that's running off into the ocean. It's making it less salty in some places. And the way that large-scale ocean currents work is based on these gradients of temperature and salinity. So cold and salty water is heavier than hot and less salty water. And if you don't have as much cold, really salty water because everything's warmer and there's so much melting, then it doesn't sink as well. And the sinking part is what drives the circulation of these ocean currents. So that's actually slowing down the current in the North Atlantic. So recognizing that every question I'm going to ask you for the next hour is like what you get in a third grade classroom. No, these are really important questions. I don't understand ocean currents at all. Yeah. Like I feel like a bunch of other things. I have some kind of mental symbolism that's probably half wrong, but at least exists. But the like I will sometimes read like in the Dave Wells book or others, these big sections about possible destruction or transformation of ocean currents and Mm -hmm. the disastrous, like, deep impact, disaster movie-style outcomes that could have. But what are the ocean currents? What are the big currents? Like, why are they there now? And what would it mean for them to change? So I'll caveat this by saying this is not my area of expertise, but there are basically, um, you know, currents, large, large currents going around every ocean basin. Think of them as like these large gyres Um, and they're circulating water around that basin. And they because I think one element that's important to remember about the ocean is that it's three dimensions. Right. So it has a lot of depth to it as well as what we see on the surface. So when you look at a map of ocean currents, you just see these sort of 
irregular circles going around, you know, in each of the major parts of the ocean. But what you don't necessarily see is that they're they're also like circulating at are along depth as mm-hmm. well. Um, and so the reason it's such a big deal if those slow down is because so many other things are tied to that. So, for example, the the current in the North Atlantic is pulling warm water up from near the Caribbean towards Europe, which is the reason why Europe is so warm for a place that's at that high a latitude. It should be snowier, right? Like, mm-hmm. like Scotland doesn't get as much snow as Maine, and it's because of this ocean current. So o- the when when we talk about climate change without talking about the ocean, we're really missing a huge part of how our climate system functions. So when I think about climate, I think of the ocean as part of the climate system. It's not just air. It's the way that these things are interacting. And so that's, um, that's sort of one example of what ha- is happening with those currents and why they're important, because it, it actually affects the air temperature and the weather and the precipitation in different parts of the world. Um, and also because ocean currents, um, one of these types of currents is called upwelling, and that's when deeper, colder water comes up to the surface. So it wells up and that brings with it a lot of nutrients. And that's part of um, what drives really productive fisheries like the anchovies in Peru or fishing off the coast of California um, or off of South, uh, South Africa. Those areas are really productive fishing spots because there's this like nutrient-rich cold water that's like rushing up to the surface. And that starts to slow down when we have these changes in our ocean climate system. And that's one of the um, projected impacts of really big concern that's been discussed in the latest UN climate report that just came out last month. Yeah, I'm going to I want to put a pin and come back to that report because it wasn't comforting. I didn't think. (laughs) Um, Good luck finding comforting climate reports. Yeah, no, no, they're not great. I cried on the subway when I read that. Really? What did that report say? What did they find? It's a big report. So there's a lot of different results in it. But it was the first time I've seen a UN report so thoroughly discuss the human health and well-being and justice implications of what we're doing to this planet. The food security for hundreds of millions of people is at risk because, you know, about half a billion people around the world depend on seafood as their main source of protein and livelihoods. And so what does that mean when fish populations start to plummet because the water's too hot for them or they're moving towards the poles and out of range of these small-scale fishermen? And what does it mean when floods that used to come every hundred years are coming every year? And what does it mean to have this happen in the context of seas that are multiple feet higher, and then storm surge on top of that. And it broke my heart to think about all the people who were on the front lines of this who really didn't cause the problem, right? When you think about who has caused climate change, it is corporate greed and government malfeasance and the creation of this insane fossil fuel-based economy when we we have other options, like this is a knowing decision, we're getting screwed. And the people who are getting screwed the worst are the ones that emitted the least carbon. And it 
that's why I was crying on the subway. It's just like totally unfair. It's just so cruel. And at the same time, when we think about Hurricane Dorian hitting the Bahamas and decimating that island and then a boat of a few dozen people trying to come to the U.S. to find a safe place to live and we turn them away. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that I think about when I read the science, because it's not just numbers. It's like it's whether people live or die. It's whether people can put food on the table for their families. It's whether people get washed away to sea. And it's whether we, as one of eight million species on the planet, have a right to do this to the rest. And I just could not believe more wholeheartedly that we have no right to do this. I want to be very careful how I say this next piece, um, because I think there's a lot of like meta critiquing of climate messaging in a way that does not attend to other kinds of discussions. Mm -hmm. So when I say this, it isn't a critique of how people talk about climate, but more something that I am trying to grapple with as I understand it. The potential consequences of what we're doing with climate can be so dire that a lot of the discussion gets framed in terms of habitability, right? Mm -hmm. Like, will the human race survive? Mm -hmm. And Kate Marvel was on the show before. She has this great line that, you know, a day when I just wrote in my diary didn't go extinct was not a great day. And that a world in which we have created disaster for 500 million or a billion people who did nothing to cause the disaster we've created compared to the entire human race going extinct, like seems like a smaller problem. But it is such a huge human catastrophe, like such an almost unimaginably large catastrophe and it seems to me that particularly around oceans, like that is what we are looking at, that there's a real difference in how utterly dependent people are on the ocean for direct livelihood and direct protein. Mm -hmm. And like what can you give me just some of the numbers? Like what percentage of the population or what are the numbers of the population who directly, directly, directly rely on the oceans for like a Tuesday to be okay for them? Mm. It's in the hundreds of millions. Um, it's something that's really hard to count because around the world, often like the less you have, the more dependent you are on natural resources, right? You can't go to the store, right? And if you live in a remote area, especially people are more intimately connected with nature as how they sort of get through the day. And so I've looked into this number a bunch. And the only thing I can say with absolute certainty, like who needs to eat fish to get through their day or who needs to catch fish to get through their day, it's definitely in the hundreds of millions. And when you're describing this communication challenge of, you know, are humans going extinct? How how bad is it? The thing that was really useful for me in looking at this new UN report, so it's the the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released this special report called Ocean and Cryosphere in a Changing Climate. You just say real quick, because it's the best word in this whole discussion. Cryosphere? Cryosphere. Just means ice. So this report has a bunch of graphs in it. And each graph looks at a different variable from sea level rise to air temperature to water temperature to ice melt, and it charts what's happened in the last 100 years or 50 years and what the projections are out for the end of this century or to 2100 or to 2300, depending. And 
the most important thing to me about that report is that there are a lot of different futures we could have. And humans going extinct is one extreme. And the bad news is that the good option is like also still pretty dire. So the best case scenario that we really get our act together and reduce carbon emissions and sort of fix other broader problems with our transportation and energy and food system in order to stop ruining the climate, that happens in such short order that things start to stabilize. So that's the best case scenario. We do everything we know that needs to be done with the tools that we currently have, and we currently have enough tools to do this, and we just do it super fast. And then the worst case scenario is business as usual and like we just let everything go off the rails, right? So there's a lot between totally getting our act together and letting everything go off the rails. And those those two lines on the graphs, there's a blue line, which is the best case scenario, and there's a red line, which is the worst case scenario. And they are really divergent. It makes a huge difference what we do. And that was one of the main takeaways for me from this report is that even though the future does not look good, it could be bad or it could be horrific and apocalyptic. And like we get to influence that trajectory. And it's really important that we do because so many lives hang in the balance. There's a really nice line in David uh, Wallace Wells's book, The Uninhabitable Earth, where he says, and I'm paraphrasing because he says it more beautifully than I will, but he says the great existential insight of climate change is that nature is pervasive in everything we do, that our existence atop it is fragile. And one of the things that trying to engage with all this literature does is it slightly re- it recenters your relationship with the world around you. It, it begins to tear away. We're sitting on the 14th floor of a building right now in the middle of Manhattan. And all I see around me are buildings, right? I see you and then behind you just buildings. And it's really easy to look out and see no nature, right? To forget that like the atmosphere is around us, right? Whether or not I perceive it correctly, but I don't see it's ocean. It's also funny when mm-hmm. we um, dig up the street to put to fix pipes or something in New York and you see soil, you see yeah. dirt under there and you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, There's still something here that we're living on top of. And oceans have this particularly deeply. It is yeah. very easy to be in an area where you're landlocked or, you know, even, even in just New York 50 City, miles. which has 520 miles of coastline and is an archipelago. We don't think of it that way. I grew up in Brooklyn. I never thought I lived in a coastal city. It just didn't occur to me. Mm-hmm. And, and that's exactly it, right? That so there's this great, um, while, while looking at this, so 40% of the world's population live within 60 miles of the coast. Yeah. And two-thirds of the world's largest cities, um, cities with more than 5 million people, are at least partially in low elevation areas near the coast. Like New York City, L.A., Miami, mm-hmm. San Francisco, these are epiphenomena of the ocean. Mm-hmm. They're, like, yeah, they're they, where they, they are because of the ocean. They around natural harbors. I mean, New York, New York is an amazing natural harbor, and so is San Francisco, and that's why they were developed in the way, in the time where they were, when shipping was the primary way of getting goods and people around. And it's really important to think about that because 
in addition to the numbers that you mentioned globally, a third of Americans live in coastal cities. So I think it's really important to push back against this idea that it's like liberal elites living in coastal cities. It's a third of all Americans and all kinds of people live in cities. And for the U.S. in coastal counties, it's 40 percent of the country. And these are increasing trends, not decreasing. And specifically because of the geography of New York and the Northeast, the projections of one or two feet of sea level rise by the end of this century, that's the global projection. It's actually more like one or two meters for New York City. And we're not prepared. Like no coastal cities are really prepared for how much sea level rise is coming. And I think the the challenge with not talking about it because it's so big means that we're not preparing which means that we're creating a much more dangerous situation. Before we get into vulnerability and preparation, which we will, I'd like to talk just for a minute or two about the like relationship as it exists now, just like the interdependence, right? If you're in New York City or you live in Houston and you don't see the ocean on a daily basis, like what, what, what relationship do you have to it? What is it actually doing in your life? How are we interdependent on the coastlines near us? So, I mean... Everything from shipping, it's nice to see that New York has more ferries going now. When we think about the quality of the water, that depends on what's living in it, whether there are healthy populations of oysters and other filter feeders. Um, If we want clean water, we need a healthy ocean. Of course, we think about it more when a storm like Hurricane Sandy comes through and reminds us that the ocean is is a force to be reckoned with. Um, but the ocean also produces, you know, depending on the estimate you look at, about half of the oxygen we breathe because of phytoplankton, these tiny marine algae that produce oxygen for us. And so I'm, I'm glad that people are aware of the importance of rainforests right now as a really important source of oxygen. If we want to keep breathing, we should keep them around, but we should also make sure that we're taking care of the ocean and phytoplankton because ocean acidification and temperature increase is also harming them. And so um, at, the, at the most fundamental level, that's, that's one important thing the so ocean's it, doing for us. The absolute scary thing that I come across in every climate book I read is this there is some past extinction, and I'll get the one wrong, that killed off or bloomed some kind of uh, ocean um, life that, like the phytoplankton, it basically created a mass die-off and over-oxygenated or under-oxygenated and just killed off life. And there's occasionally been an argument that we could warm things to the extent that the phytoplankton die in 50 or 100 years and create an oxygenation crisis worldwide. Some climate scientists have told me not to worry about this. I'm curious where you come down on that one. There's a lot of well maybes, um, and I think what what's important is some number of these things are going to happen to some degree, and that it's not just all or nothing. Yeah, it's not a healthy ocean and climate at like a hundred and pristine or zero, and everything dies and we die with it. There's this whole range in the middle, and that's what actually motivates me to do my work is knowing how much it matters whether we're at like. 20% or 80% or whatever number we are in the middle, that like every tenth of a degree matters, um, every species we save matters, every bit of habitat we protect matters, because that has impact on so many other things. And I think there is a danger in, of thinking about it in 
too sort of stark and absolutist mm-hmm. terms in terms of apocalypse or no apocalypse because like you don't even want mini apocalypse but like that is an apocalypse <laughs> <laughs> um okay. we need a new scale of words yeah. for uh for this stuff because i feel like people throw around the word apocalypse all the time and it's sort of losing its heft right well and also it creates this i think it creates an implicit um test that if you can disprove apocalypse Right. If I can argue that there will not be an apocalypse, well, okay, then don't need to worry. Yeah. But to what we were talking about a bit earlier, it's no apocalypse, but 500 million people's lives are, you know, either are thrown into chaos or even endangered. And I mean, that's not to say like that's that 500 million is just because of seafood. Yes. No, I know. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm just there's saying also for climate like, change. Yeah. You know, the hundreds of millions or billion climate refugees that we'll have for other reasons. So we talked a a bit about interdependence with the oceans. Let's talk about sea level rise, because I think the thing that people, particularly in cities that are coastal, um, hear about now is sea level rise. And can you just talk a bit about the the, what is causing sea level rise and how fast does it look to be happening? Mm -hmm. So sea level rise is caused by two things. One is the one we think about, which is ice melting and running off of land into the sea. And that's that's happening. And it's happening more quickly than we had anticipated. In fact, every time there's a new study and a new projection of that, it's worse. They're never like, oops, we did the math wrong. It's actually fine. I can't wait till that paper comes out. But that hasn't happened yet. The other thing that makes sea level rise is just that when water is warmer, it expands. So the ocean is actually getting bigger just because it's hotter. Those are the two ways that sea level rises. And we've seen... Um, here in New York, about a foot over the last uh, 100 or so years. And we're looking at several feet to several meters by the end of this century. But that depends a lot on the local geography. So some places the land is rising, some places the land is sinking. That obviously factors into what your relative sea level rise will be, as well as the way that currents work. Um, For a place also. like New York, when you're thinking about the difference between, you know, one and a half feet and four mm-hmm. and a half feet or five mm-hmm. and a half feet in sea level rise, what kind of difference are we talking about? We're talking about like whether New York looks more like Venice, Italy. I mean, that's the easiest way I can imagine it. Like we have streets named Canal Street, like maybe that will be wet again, right? I'm really interested in how we can envision and design a future that doesn't continue to naively expect that we can hold back the entire ocean, because that seems to be the sort of brute force techno-utopian approach, right? Like, we'll just, like, engineer our way out of this, whereas, like, we can't actually hold back the entire ocean. And we need to think in a more clear-headed way about what it looks like to say, okay, like, step one, stop building new things within a meter of sea level rise. I mean, we're still building and investing huge amounts in private homes and infrastructure in places we know are not going to be safe. And like that to me is just, let's start there with, <laughs> with with not doing that anymore. And then think about what it looks like to slowly transition more and more of our 
infrastructure and homes out of harm's way. And I think about it as like you're in harm's way, not like you made a bad decision, although, you know, maybe maybe that's a maybe it was an informed risk. But I think about it as how do we transform the way that we live to accommodate the realities of a changing climate. And we're just not really having that conversation yet, which means we're just continuing to lose time to prepare. So this concept of managed retreat or planned retreat, as it's called, is trying to get us to think through what would it look like to actually move away from the coast. And that's really, really hard to think about because, of course, we care about these places. We're not just financially invested in them. We also have memories there of, you know, going to the beach with our families and learning to swim and where you had your first kiss or caught your first fish. Like what what we're losing is culture and its community. And so figuring out how we can acknowledge and process that together as the ocean like swallows up our memories is something that we can't certainly deal with unless we start to f- face what the science is telling us is coming. And that that hasn't really happened yet. On sea level rise in particular, I feel like people think if somehow if they ignore it, like it can't be real. It's because it's too crazy a change to even imagine. There are a couple of threads I want to follow there, but it, tucked in there was an almost, I thought, optimistic thought, which is, I mean, Venice is nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Venice is in trouble, right? Like it was built with canals, but the sea level is rising so much there that it's flooding buildings and streets that aren't supposed to be wet. But the thought is that there are ways to live in harmony with nature, even while it's changing. If we think through it, we have to be designing, envisioning, designing this future that we want that takes into account the real scientific projections. And we can't just keep thinking that it's going to be the best case scenario, which is, I think, where human nature wants to lead us, right? There's there's the apocalypse. And then there's like, oh, well, this UN report said we could stay at 1.5 degrees Celsius global temperature increase. So let's just all assume that that's where we're going to stay, which is just very naive at this point. So we can't plan for only the best case scenario. And I don't know how to describe it. There's just a lot of grappling that needs to happen that's not happening, right? Because the science just gives us information that we can use to make decisions. But we still, as humans, as as cities, as communities, as nations, as an international community, need to make decisions that are based on that science for what are we going to do? Well, one of the so I want to talk about a bunch of the specific things and, and how one could do it, but I also want to talk about the context in which it'll happen because I think we can sometimes get into a discourse around this that is acting like the world is an economics model. Mm. And it's not that hard to imagine maybe how you would fund a particular kind of defense or managed retreat or elevation of a certain place and maybe compared to doing all the other things you would need to do to get there beforehand, it's at least not the worst scenario you could imagine. But that in practice, when we see the disasters beginning to happen or beginning to come, it doesn't look to me like the way human thinking on this plays out is going to be, well, let's all pitch in together and help the people in harm's way. Mm -hmm. Um, People are going to say, well, I didn't buy that oceanfront property. 
I didn't live there. That's a blue coastal city. They should have lived in, you know, wherever I live. And I don't want to fund that. And so one of the things that is scary about what's going to happen to a lot of the cities um, and just a lot of coastal regions in general is that if you're rich enough to lose what you had and just pick up and move and not worry about the fact that you can't get anybody to buy your home, mm-hmm. well, I mean, okay. but I'm not worried about beach houses in the Hamptons. Exactly. Yeah. But if you're not, if you just live there and your families always live there, mm-hmm. I don't know that we're going to be so generous um, with those people uh, because it's just one of these many things that I worry that the context of living amidst climate change is going to make us crueler and more selfish rather than more yeah. collectivist and more open. It'll all, we'll always want to pin it on people's personal decisions. And why should I have to pay for your personal decision where mm-hmm. your personal decision just means like living where you grew up while like we torched the planet's <laughs> atmosphere? Yeah. I mean, Dr. Kate Marvel has a really elegant way of putting this that she says she's worried most of all when she thinks about climate change, not of what climate is doing to us, but what we will do to each other. That's a very elegant way of putting that. And that first time I heard her say that, it really just hit me in the gut, right? Because exactly what you're describing is one possibility, that we are not kind to each other, that we are not welcoming of refugees, that we um, do not share the resources that we have. I mean, we're also having this conversation right on the tails of the release of the data about how tax rates for the rich have plummeted in the last decade or so, right? Like the people with the most are now sharing less. And what does that mean for like all these rich folks in Silicon Valley who are buying their getaway places in New Zealand? And like, how could you be any less collectivist than that, right? Mm -hmm. And so the only way through is together. And when you talk about people potentially from the Midwest saying, well, you de- you decided to live on the coast. Well, people in the Midwest are dealing with crazy flooding and people in other parts of the country are dealing with crazy fires. And so we have to just acknowledge that this is something that's going to affect all of us. And it's just going to look a little different in each place, right? Some places are going to be too hot to go outside. Some places it's the flooding, some places the fire, some places it's drought, some places it's the mudslides, some places it's the storms on the coast, some places it's the increase in tornadoes. And so the idea that anyone is safe from this is, I think, a dangerous perspective. It's the one problem that we've dealt with as a species that you can't buy your way out of. Your wealth can't save you. Right. You can buy better education. You can buy better health care. You can buy better food. But you can't buy your way out of a planetary climate crisis. You can maybe I think you can buy yourself a little more time, but you can't buy your way out of it because who's going to be delivering to you this food and where is it going to be coming from? And we've just seen that, you know, these these attempts to grow food in labs with lights, like that doesn't really work that well. We actually need nature and soil. And so I think it's important to remember that all these things are connected. You can have a bunker on top of a mountain, but if you can't get what you need there, then, you know, good luck mm-hmm. with that. We need to be thinking about how we can support each other. And so my mantra in the last two years has become 
that building community around solutions is the most important thing. So this is actually the longest I've spent talking about the problem in a really long time because I'm I know it's bad. Sometimes I skip over the details of exactly how bad it is in the latest science because it doesn't change what I need to do and what most people need to do, which is figure out how your resources and skills and network and dollars map on to the solutions that we need. Because that's, I mean, that's the game, right? Like that's what we need to figure out. And so there's there's some degree to which like, I don't really care that much if people understand the nuance of ocean currents, which is why my explanation is like not probably as good as it should be. Um, because what we need to do is sort of independent of, the details. Obviously, as a scientist, I think it's really important that that some people understand that, that we track it, that we understand cause and effect and the magnitude of those impacts and how that will affect people. But for the average person who's just like, what does this mean? What do I do? I'm like, it's really bad. And let's figure out how you can help. That's probably a much, I'm just trying to think about that because it's funny when I consider that from the journalistic side, we spend so much of our time on problems mm -hmm. and we spend so much of our time on problems because one, the problems are important and it feels like a conception of problem is what drives people to action. If anything, will drive people to action, but it can also be very overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And I think it also obscures the fact that we actually do have all the solutions we need. Because when we talk only about the problem, we it makes people think that we don't know what to do. And I think the most interesting science is actually around all of these opportunities for improving things. And so I am a marine biologist. I don't conduct marine research anymore. But the thing that I have started to understand much more about in the last decade is farming and the connections between the way we eat and not just the health of the planet, but the health of the ocean, right? We have created this system of industrial agriculture that uses so much fossil fuel, that uses so much pesticide and so much fertilizer and plows up all of the soil every time that we're washing away huge amounts of our topsoil and all these toxins into the sea, causing dead zones and polluting things and making the fish less healthy to eat. And that has climate impacts and that has impacts on the ocean. But of course, there are different ways to farm. Like we like I think about regenerative agriculture as an ocean and climate solution that we should be pursuing. So those are the kinds of things that I get really excited about. And since my mother became a farmer a dozen years ago, I've had a front row seat to what that could look like. What kind of farming does she do? She has, right now, I think about 150 chickens. It got up to 400 at, at one point, which is a little out of hand. Um, and we have a large permaculture garden and a young um, orchard of fruit trees. How do you think about the tension here between the individual level and the systemic level? I think about it a lot. Our individual actions matter collectively, right? So I kind of skip ahead often to thinking about the collective and the community because what we do together matters so much more than what we do as one person. Of course, one person can really light an important spark 
and create a trend or a movement. And so it's not to discount the importance of the individual, but if you live, you know, your perfect life that no one ever sees and you don't inspire anyone with the ways that you do things, then that's not really all that helpful. So we need that's not to say like that you should be really annoying and sanctimonious to the extent that like no one wants to listen to you or follow your lead. But that's actually one of the most beautiful things about the youth climate strike movement is that people credit Greta Thunberg with starting and inspiring that movement. But the but it wouldn't have mattered if no one followed her. And I think the fact that this this youth movement is led by teenagers and by girls in particular, the fact that one girl did this very brave and important thing and then other girls across the world were like, that seems right. We should do that too. Like that's the part that matters. And so I would actually love to see our society shift to following Like we actually do need more followers. It's not that we need more leaders. We need more people to join things. We need more people to say like, that's good, I'm in, right? As opposed to everyone trying to invent their own way and start their own organization, like join the thing that's working and make it bigger and spread it. I think people have a generalized sense of possible solutions to climate change as we normally talk about it. Mm -hmm. How does that picture look different from the ocean's perspective? Is it just pricing? Mm. I mean, people talk about pricing carbon and investing in renewable energy research. And I mean, there's this kind of set of things we've heard, but I've heard you talk about, and I know you wrote a piece for Data for Progress about this, that what was it, the blue hole in the Green New Deal? Yeah, the big blue gap in the Green New Deal. That was um, an op-ed that I wrote for Grist with Bren Smith, who is an ocean farmer, and Chad Nelson, who is the CEO of Surfrider, this the largest grassroots environment, uh, ocean conservation group in the U.S. And from our collective perspectives, we were thinking through, like, the Green New Deal, we read it. By the way, everyone should read it. I think everyone talks about the Green New Deal, and no one's really read the resolution. So just for the record, it's like 14 pages, yeah, double-spaced, really large font. It'll take you five minutes. Just skim it so we, like, as a society, can have an informed conversation about it. Of course, when I read it, I was looking for, okay, well, where's the ocean? And the ocean appears, the word ocean appears once in the context of very generally, like, we should we should protect the ocean. Like, that that's part of this. But the ocean should be appearing in the section about agriculture because we can actually farm the ocean. And farming shellfish and seaweed is a really big opportunity and a part of the solution because— oysters and mussels and clams and all these different kinds of seaweeds absorb tons of carbon as they grow. And we don't need to feed them or water them. They just live off the nutrients in seawater and they live off of sunlight. And it is one of the lowest carbon footprint sources of food and highest nutrition value sources of food that we can eat. And eating oysters is actually could be have a lower carbon footprint than being totally vegan because of this, right? So we need to just think of the ocean as part of the solution. So this idea of restorative or regenerative ocean farming, where growing shellfish and seaweed actually makes the ocean healthier while feeding us, like, why would we ignore that? That's great. We should be doing more of that. Also, I recognize this is probably not the topic of this uh, of this conversation, but big, fascinating debate among vegans about whether or not oysters are vegan. Of which I'm on the oysters are vegan side. Oysters are not vegan, but if your if your primary concern is the carbon footprint or environmental footprint of your diet, 
then they're okay. A lot of, lot of vegans think because of the lack of central nervous system and other kind of pain receptors, well, they should be thought of that way. I don't want to mess with those <laughs> vegans. They have like what a, a, their thing figured out. Um, but it's one of the, certainly one of the few items of seafood that I eat and feel really comfortable about. I'm curious, what are the items of seafood you eat and feel comfortable about? So very few. I think in general, um, the U.S. does a really good job of managing its fisheries. And so eating U.S. seafood would be the number one piece of advice I would give people and, and as local as you can. And the next thing is to eat lower on the food chain. This idea that we could all be eating tunas doesn't make any sense because tuna is so high up on the food chain that eating a tuna is the land equivalent to like whatever eats a dragon that eats a lion. Like that's a tuna. <laughs> and so we can't like that could never be sustainable. They just don't reproduce fast enough, given that we have almost 8 billion people on the planet, right? That wild fisheries can't continue to feed our growing numbers. But eating sardines and anchovies is something that I'll do. These little fish that reproduce mm -hmm. quickly. They're also healthier for you. They have more omega-3s and less toxins because fish like tuna are accumulating all these PCBs and mercury and other stuff in their flesh as they live long and eat lots of little things. So there's a, a lovely win-win there. So eat local seafood, eat lower on the food chain, and then eat shellfish and algae that are farmed. The one exception to that is that there is an indigenous family in Alaska some of them are based in Brooklyn part of the year and Alaska part of the year, and they fish in the same place their families fish for generation in Bristol Bay. Um, and these wild Alaskan salmon are, it's one of the healthiest salmon populations in the world. And it's in a place that's been slated for development of pebble mine. This largest open pit gold mine in the world could be developed there. And this is something that had been rejected finally by the Obama administration and that's being reopened for possibility right now. And so there's a weird way in which my supporting this indigenous family in their right to continue fishing there and as proof that that place is has economic uses and cultural importance beyond the and that a gold mine that's going to ruin the environment is not the answer. It's like my little very delicious, healthy protest. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, yeah, those are kind of, that's how I feel about seafood. So thinking about ocean climate solutions, this idea of regenerative or restorative ocean farming is a big one that needs to expand dramatically. Um, that's, an e that's a big economic opportunity. It's an economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's a health and nutrition opportunity, and it's a way to sequester carbon. And is that a policy? Should like what? What does that look yeah. like as a policy, as opposed to just being? It would be good if there were more of it. One of the challenges is permitting, because this stuff hasn't been happening that much. There often aren't good processes for getting a permit to do it, or there are places in which it's not just there's not a good process. Like there is no process. Like. If you want to grow kelp in New York waters, like, I don't know if this has just recently changed, but until very recently, at least, you you couldn't do it. It wasn't that it was banned, but there was also no way to get allowed to do it. So just thinking about, like, how the boring sort of nitty gritty of permitting um, the things that we want to happen and facilitating those with policy. Um, and then thinking about how we can support this idea of blue carbon. So in the same way that trees on land absorb carbon, coastal ecosystems in particular, but the ocean in general, is a carbon sink. 
And so figuring out how the people who are growing these shellfish and algae that are absorbing carbon can get credit for that would be a policy opportunity and making sure that we're supporting the research that's necessary to understand where we should be putting these facilities and where we should be citing them, how we should be regulating and monitoring them, understanding which species are best for all these different types of things. So there's a research and development element of it. There's a monitoring element of it. There's a permitting element of it. And all that can be facilitated by good policy decisions. And those policy decisions should be made by talking to the people who have been doing this, the stakeholders, the communities, the the pioneers of this industry. Can you give me a bit of a more vivid idea of what that looks like? So I think people can imagine this reasonably well on land, like you plant a bunch of trees. Mm-hmm. What does it look like in the ocean to have these like dedicated blue carbon sinks? So it could look a few different ways. The model that I'm most familiar with as far as also producing food is something that's been pioneered by Bren Smith and this organization called Green Wave that you can basically create these underwater farms. And how that works is that you have buoys at the surface and ropes between them. So if you're At the surface of the water, all you see are a few buoys floating on the surface, delineating the farm. And the ropes between the buoys you plant, you basically like seed them with um, seaweed seeds and they grow out. And then you have these sort of like curtains of seaweed that are hanging down. And amidst these curtains of seaweed, you can have mussels that sort of grow off of ropes that hang down from the surface and you can have oysters on the bottom and clams and all sorts of other things that are happening. So the ocean being three dimensions is actually a really valuable thing in this context because you can grow a huge amount of food in a small area uh, without impeding, you know, transit on the surface because all you have are a few buoys that you need to avoid. And I think that there's an easy way to hear that and think, well, if we did that at scale, would we be setting off some kind of cataclysmic, you would be like too much seaweed and clams and, you know, the predators and the ecosystem and we shouldn't be screwing with things. That's been the problem all along. Is this kind of thing healthy for the ocean? Yeah, that's not something I worry about. I worry about a lot of things, but like (laughs) (laughs) um, not that. And I think it's really important, though, that we consider which species we're growing in which place, right? Because invasive species getting out of control is a concern. If we grow, um, we just want to grow like the the appropriate species of seaweed and in different places. So clams are probably not going to take over the ocean, mount a hostile invasive operation. And that's the problem we could eat our way out of. And we're pretty <laughs> good at like eating things to an, an endangered level. So I have faith in humanity for that, at least. So on the flip side of this, there are some things that get brought up in the climate conversation as potential solutions that would have um, a lot less of an effect on the ocean. So people talk about geoengineering, which again, mm-hmm. I'm going to sort of have a whole episode on. But I think it's always important to, to mention that you can do some of these things like blasting sulfates in the atmosphere, but not at all change ocean acidification, that mm-hmm. some of the problems are different. I'd love to have you talk a bit about that because I think there are some ideas that people have in the back of their head is, well, if it ever got too bad, we could do this, but this may mm-hmm. not actually solve the problems in the oceans. Yeah. Geoengineering is not something I've looked into that much, but... So then what are some other what are some other solutions that maybe people, people don't hear about as much? We don't hear enough about the importance of coastal ecosystems 
and the opportunity of restoring them. So wetlands and seagrasses and mangroves, all of these plant ecosystems along our coastlines, they can actually absorb five times more carbon in their sediments than a tropical rainforest. And it's So that's a huge solution that we're ignoring if we don't protect and then actively restore coastal ecosystems. And there's other benefits of that, too, because having these ecosystems intact at our shoreline is also a really great opportunity for protection against storms. Because places like New York City, when Hurricane Sandy hit, even though we'd already destroyed 85 percent of our wetlands here, What little there was left saved us from about $250 million in damage because having all this vegetation at the shoreline, as the water is surging in, it creates all this friction and it just slows it down and it sort of just – it disperses the impact of waves and storm surge. And so we we have this opportunity to augment – what nature is already trying to do for us. And so instead of continuing to destroy coastal ecosystems, we have this opportunity to protect and restore them so that they can protect us from incoming storms and 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 sea level rise. And that's, I think, something that doesn't get talked about enough. The other one is renewable energy, offshore wind energy as a really uh, important solution. And the price of that is coming down dramatically. And given that a third of Americans live in coastal cities, that could actually be high enough density of people that it makes sense to invest this much in infrastructure for offshore wind. And so in that way, the ocean is a part of the solution as well. So whether we're thinking about energy or coastal ecosystems or aquaculture, the ocean is not just the place that's bearing the burden of all of these climate changes, whether it's the warming of the waters or the acidification of the water, but it's like really trying to help us. And ignoring it when we think about things like the Green New Deal is just missing these huge opportunities. And uh, actually on that last point, um, what is the relationship we should think of ourselves as having with the ocean? That if part of the problem here Mm. is that we are very out of balance in our understanding of what is our relationship with nature in general and probably with oceans here in particular, like what, what has changed for you over time or what have you seen in others? It would just be a healthier way of seeing ourselves in the broader ecosystem that we actually inhabit. I think... There's something really valuable about standing on the shoreline and looking out at the ocean and letting yourself feel really small. It's the same thing as being on top of a mountain or being in the middle of a forest or in the middle of a huge field. I think it's really important for us to understand our role in nature as just one species, as just one individual of one species. And that can go a few different ways, right? When you internalize that, you can say, well, my impacts don't matter. But obviously, that's not the direction that I'm going. I think for me, when I recalibrate my place in the planet in these amazing ecosystems, it's to to have a bit more humility about what we deserve. Because I think there's this, this incredible hubris to think that we don't need nature, 
right? That we can invent our way out of it, out of all these problems that we're solving, that that at once our individual impacts don't matter. On the other hand, we'll just, of course, it's all falling apart, but we'll somehow magically fix it without the underlying understanding that everything is based on what are termed natural resources in economics. I always think back to this like Econ 101 diagram where the thing that goes into economies is natural resources. It's the wood and the metal and the water. And without that, like nothing else works. And so I like to just be in nature and feel small and remind myself that I depend on it and it does not need me at all. And there's nothing like swimming offshore to remind yourself of that. It's easy to talk just about the like the policy solutions, but in terms of the movement building and the organizing, when you're doing your work on this, like what are the who's working on it? What are the kind of coalitions you're seeing? Like what what mm. what, what is here in the politics of it that maybe people don't expect? The thing that seems to continually surprise people is that it's people of color who actually care the most about climate issues, about the environment, because they're on the front lines, whether it's the power plant in their community ruining air quality or their inability to catch healthy seafood locally, that we have like a significantly greater percentage of people of color who are deeply concerned about climate and really want government to step up on solutions. So this vision that a lot of people have, that it's like a white guy in a Patagonia jacket with a Prius, like looking off into the distance in the mountains, that that is the environmentalist. That's a really destructive stereotype because it excludes most of America and humanity who really, really cares. And there's a huge opportunity there by acknowledging that and including people of color in the movement who have been doing the work and often not getting the credit. And there's also significantly more women and significantly more young people who care about climate issues. One, one of the things I've noticed reporting on this, and without it being framed as like a who cares more, because I think a, a, I found, you know, a lot of people care about it from a lot of different directions. Mm -hmm. Something I have found is that a lot of communities who are on the front line, who are often communities of color, have a much more visceral sense mm -hmm. of the relationship with nature and what can happen and if it turns bad and what's at stake. Whereas um, a lot of more kind of abstract level political activists, mm -hmm. they care a lot about the issue, but it isn't. It isn't from a sense that like they could be or their communities could be annihilated. It's because the issue, you know, it's like it's the way people get involved in national politics. It's mm -hmm. important. It's value oriented. But the kinds of coalitions you see in communities that have had um, a power plant fail or watched a waterway get polluted. Yeah. It just it's a very different kind of organizing and participation. And there's something much um much more grounded in the day-to-day -day human consequence of it. Absolutely. And it, it's an all-hands-on-deck moment. And so it's really great to see that the way that climate activism is evolving, it's now a three-generation movement. And we're now seeing that people of color are finally starting to feel more welcome into the mainstream movement and that young people are really stepping into leadership positions and women are stepping into leadership positions and we're throwing open the doors to everyone finally not as not as wide as they need to be yet but if we don't continue that trend like that's the recipe for failure we really have to make sure that everyone feels there's a role for them in this work because i don't think of this as my job i think of this as 
a lifetime's worth of work. Like this is my life's work to be a part of the solution to the climate crisis. And so we need to welcome as many people in as possible. And knowing how many people of color and how many women and how many young people already deeply care, it's great that that we're sort of opening our arms to all the possibility that that holds. That's a great place, I think, to, to come to a close. So let me ask you what's always our final question, which is, what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? This is a hard one for me. Um, the first book is one called Eat Like a Fish by Bren Smith, who is this pioneer in regenerative ocean farming. And it's his story of the transition from being a fisherman to being an ocean farmer and his crazy adventures, but also the economics and complexities of that with just the most amazing anecdotes. A second book I would recommend is Water in Plain Sight, which is by Judith Schwartz. And it's it's actually a book about agriculture. It's a book about farming and the global freshwater cycle, which is intertwined with ocean cycles. And a huge part of our problem is that we're not thinking about water enough. We think about gases. We think about carbon dioxide. And maybe some people are thinking about methane, but we're not thinking about rain and the water cycle and how much we've disturbed that by ruining our soils and how that just messes up everything. So Water in Plain Sight by Judith Schwartz. And then Merge Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown, because I think it so eloquently puts the importance of community and relies on these examples of biomimicry and nature and how humans can learn so much from the way that nature is structured and its interdependencies. And when I think about the how we're going to build the world we want to live in and how we're going to transform societies and economies and governments. We have to think about community and movement building and changing culture. And so, yeah, those are those are the three books that I would love for some other people to read. Dr. Anna Elizabeth Johnson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Ayanna uh, Elizabeth Johnson for being here. Uh, that is episode two of our climate series. There's a lot more to come, um, maybe going to take a minute to get some of it, some of the rest of it out given our schedule, but there's a lot more to come. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It takes a second and it really does help. Uh, I know given how many hosts say this, it probably just fades into the background, but, but seriously, if, if it, this was worth it to you, uh, do me a favor, take five minutes and do that. Um, or send it to a friend, a family member, a friend of me, whoever you think might enjoy it. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. My email, as always, is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And the show, as always, is a Vox Media podcast production. Hold up. 